That's it. Yeah. All right, guys. Hello, and welcome to the Cat and Cloud Coffee Podcast. We are about to take you on a fantastic journey with the second half of the Tonks interview. If you haven't listened to the first half, go back, rewind, skip to the previous episode, and dig into it. It's a really fun one. We've known Tony for a long time, aka Tonks, so there's a lot of history, a lot of memories, and a lot of industry perspective. Turn down for what? Turn down for what? Turn down for nothing. Turn it up only. (laughs) Also, in other fun news. Great news. We have our first sponsor for the podcast. This is kind of a a big thing, and we've been looking at this for a while. A few people have reached out to us. Turned down a few. Turned down a few, expressed interest, and it was important to us that we connected with someone that we felt had good brand alignment and a good product that we believe in, and we've landed on that. Yeah, so shout out to Califia Farms for our first sponsor. Thank you guys very much. They are located in Southern California. They do the finest almond milk of all time and a bunch of non-dairy beverages. Keep your eyes peeled. There's going to be some some real nice things coming out here this summer. Yeah, are you guys st- ready? Their stuff's really awesome. It really is. I'm, you know, if I'm being 100% honest, I'm a, I'm a milk guy. And when it comes to the milk alternatives, I'm like pretty careful about what I put inside myself in my body. And I don't want all that weird stuff in there. He's health conscious. I'm health conscious. And there's something about the texture of Calafia that really just wets my whistle. It's the best texture. And I'm a texture guy. I've actually been drinking the almond milk caps at the bake shop because Stacy can have no lactose. So Stacy's always making almond milk caps with the Calafia stuff that we use there also. And he got me hooked. He made me a little macchiato today. Sweet and delicious. Nice. Yeah, I'm really feeling they also have a toasted coconut almond milk that has been the bomb. My wife and kids love that. It's the shizniz. And they have a bunch of cold brew drinks as well that are hot right now. So uh, just big shout out to them. Really cool to be working with them. And uh, and thank you guys for, for sponsoring the podcast. Yeah, and I just to talk a little more on it, it's, it's less of like a plug. And we spend a lot of time on the phone with a bunch of people over there. And you can tell they're really interested in the specialty coffee scene and making products for the specialty coffee scene and are not just along for the ride of this new trend of hot coffee and we're going to latch onto this and just throw some money at it and see what happens. They're, they're definitely interested in quality, quality control and you know how that all shakes out. So big time. I yeah. thought that was cool. We were amped on them. Yeah. We've known them for a long time as well. Um, our friend Mark Scorheim. So there's your shout out, buddy. We've hung out with him a few years in a row at the especially coffee conferences and stopped at their booths and tested out their drinks. They also have a turmeric drink, a ginger turmeric drink y'all. That is happy for all y'all golden milk lovers who drink those things at GMB. You can try one at home now, too. They're pretty good. Uh, Anyway, yeah, dudes. Check it out. Check it, check it, check it. We're going to jump into uh, part two of Tonks now. So hold on to your butts because there's a lot more history coming at you. Nailed it. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is part of the the DNA of why we did Tonks as a online-only business. I just felt like in a regular coffee bar environment, there's no way. I mean, the, the slow bar concepts that have right. cropped up after that sort of scratch that same itch, I guess. They try. But it's not the same thing. But it's it's different when, you know, people are coming into this environment that's, you know, that's like a, a festival and it's that intense. Right. But it's not, you know, you go to a lot of these food festivals and it's like, every line is long it's stressful it's like all kinds of like crazy street food stuff and this felt like you know 
just the right level of like space and atmosphere and um it's interesting too because you say slow bar concept but even though there was everyone was really careful and intention it wasn't really that slow no All we were considered and it. it was fast and i everybody who did try to replicate it at least immediately after that they failed because it ended up being slow when they would try to do it right because they weren't set up properly to do it or they didn't have the right people right. or the skill set In, to int do it. intelligentsia venice kind of was based on the model of slow food nation i think kyle adopted that for that store and having multiple stations and having people sort of push to the different stations but the efficiency at that shop for the first two years was just abysmal. You had twice the number of staff that was in the Silver Lake store doing half of the throughput. So it was like 25% yeah. the efficiency of a... Uh, well, that's the thing. It's, it's like we all took each station, right? They took like five to eight minutes. But yep. they brought like five to eight people in. So you're doing like 40 to 60 people in five to eight minutes. Right. Whereas and you, and you, and you, felt, you felt the pressure of the fact that there was a line and there were people yeah. waiting. And So you busted it out and you gave it to them. But, I mean, how many, how many shops are you bringing in, whatever, call it 50 people every five to eight minutes serving them and they're done and happy? Right. I mean, come on. That's, that's pretty fast. And focused. Fast and focused. And furious. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, there's there's lots of fury, abundance so, of fury. And it's just it was the it was a great place for freedom to exist, because these are all people who just they wanted their taste buds to be dazzled at that moment. Yeah. So what we kind of broke broke away from at the time was there was an expectation at that time. It's 2010, right? 2008. 2008. Okay. 2008. There was an expectation of what espresso Nine was supposed ago. to taste like. And people were kind of dabbling in single-origin espresso, but you could not get it anywhere on the regular. It yep. wasn't a normal thing to run into. So to have that freedom of just like, yeah, this maybe is going to taste wild. This is going to taste crazy, unlike anything you've ever tasted before. That was great because these people didn't have a preconceived notion of what espresso is supposed to taste like. They wanted to taste the difference. Yeah. So those wild Kenyans were welcomed. And people were like, wow, that's really interesting. Didn't know coffee could taste like that. Yeah, and I still, I, I wish I could remember the farm, but there was, uh, was it uh, Colombia, uh, was it Buena Vista? No. It was, uh, was Gatim. Oh, it was from Intelli, right? It no, no, no. Oh. The, the uh, ritual, uh, Ritual's Colombia contribution. Oh, for that. man. I remember that coffee. I don't know what it's called. I should ask Eileen. Um, but that, I, I feel like that was one of the best espressos i've ever experienced man yeah, you're close I'm, I'm spacing on it we, we were crushing it that i'm was like sure the best i'm sure there's ever. some reference to it oh yeah yeah the owenses the uh, owenses were they oh, they weren't even owenses yet pre, pre yeah they yeah. were they were pre-game pre-game chris uh yeah there was there was a lot of uh a lot of people that that were romantically involved with each other. Were you, like, were you like living in SF the, at that that's time? The real, um, when did you move I, there? You kind of started showing up a lot. So <laughs> I ended up getting engaged a couple days after Slow Food Nation. Totally. <laughs> um, to to one of one of our barista volunteer friends. Um, so she and I ran off together for a while, and then I think I was kind of between cities <laughs> for <laughs> for. Really, uh, I guess a couple of years after that. <laughs> um, so yeah, Slow Food Nation was a, a, a real turning point for you were coming into <laughs> you were coming <laughs> into the store, and then 
I'm, one oh, thing I man. remember, Rachel, the funniest thing, delivery guy comes in in the middle of a rush, big-ass box, and he's like, where should I put this? And I was like, what is in that box? He's all, it's a bike. It's for Tony, can, can this, it's, <laughs> it's for Tony somebody. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> was, oh my god! I I <laughs> used I used Ritual as my mailing address. Yeah, for he just a dropped stuff. Nice off. chunk of time while I was homeless. So uh, we got a hold of you. Hey, there's a bike in the basement for you, <laughs> which I think was for your girlfriend or whoever at the time. No, it's just that it was a girly bike. Oh, it's it just a girly bike. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> falling in love every day. <laughs> <laughs> Holy smokes, that was fun. Dang, we're crushing this thing, dude. Oh, shit. There's so much stuff. Well, let's. I mean, are there? I guess there are. There are. I mean, the thing that people would probably know you from the most in this current modern era would be Tonks, the online coffee subscription program. Yes. How did that happen? Like, in a nutshell, you know, I'm sure it's complicated, but how could people digest that really quickly? Well, okay, so... You know the 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 elevator pitch for for Tonks uh, sort of came out of, you know, at in, at Intelligentsia, I I'd assumed that if I'd stuck around at Intelli, that that building out a direct to consumer business for them would have been my next project after, after the Silver Lake store. Um, I felt like and kind of continue to feel that um, the the high end coffee does a very poor job of cultivating customer connoisseurs that the people who self-identify as coffee geeks who don't work in the industry tend to know a lot about espresso machines or tamping or pump pressure or grinders and all this totally stupid minutiae that has almost nothing to do with coffee and they buy into these kind of implicit mythologies that uh that coffee requires expensive equipment requires mm -hmm. the sort of training and all of this barista craft that that we see amplified by stupid shit like barista competitions and it, the message to consumers is that you know coffee is this kind of acquired taste unapproachable you know thing that that you know it's 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 kind of a hobby if you want to love coffee you've got to kind of embrace it as a hobby and go down these rabbit holes and gear and, mm. you know, glassware and all this nonsense. And, and I thought, okay, well, that's stupid. Uh, you know, craft beer is not doing that. Craft beer has no problem charging four bucks for a pint, um, and, and nobody blinks an eye, but you charge four bucks for a cup of coffee, and people assume that, you know, you're, you're buying a vacation home and, you know, <laughs> driving a Mercedes and, uh, you know, just making a killing and exploiting farmers in the process and, you know, a hundred right. other assumptions that, that the, the price perception, value perception is all weird. And, and in order to combat that, we keep, you know, dressing it up and, you know, baristas play dress up and mm -hmm. do this sort of prohibition era cosplay, right. you know, bow tie I bullshit, did. you know, $300 bespoke aprons and all of that. Yeah. You know, and they only eat nonsense. like the most expensive food all of a sudden because we're baristas. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Because we got to be foodies yeah. because, you know, because, you know, our customers are plebes and they don't appreciate what we're doing. So we have to seek out validation from, you know, the culinary world, and celebrity <laughs> chefs like, you know, why don't restaurants serve good coffee? We're part of the culinary world. To all, all this sort of chasing validation from, you know, e either from our peers, because they're the only people that understand what we're doing, which is natural, and then from 
other people in the culinary world who we want their respectability. Right. And meanwhile, our, our customers are these anonymous people who wait in line and give us a few bucks and maybe tip or don't tip. Because we know. forget that the people we're trying to please are those customers, not these people that we're trying to get approval from. Right. And, and, and this becomes really stark when you look at it from, from a business perspective. Mm. And so I felt like, you know, taking a few steps back and, you know, you get a lot of time to think when you're, when you're unemployed and freelancing, bro, and living freelancing. in your car and, um, and, you know, it just felt like, okay, you know, Nespresso is a, you know, seven to $9 billion business globally. Keurig's doing 3 billion a year in sales. They're charging, you know, 35 to $60 a pound for the whack ass stale coffee that right. they put in these capsules, you know, and how much whole bean coffee are the supposedly big craft coffee companies selling direct to consumer like jack shit yeah you know so at intelligentsia when i left and i have no idea what these numbers would look like today but we were 75 percent revenue wholesale 25 percent retail or something in that ballpark which meant by bean volume the actual beans going through the roaster is like Almost 90% of our bean volume was going to wholesale customers, and the 10% that was going to retail, most of that was going to make beverages. Mm -hmm. So the actual like retail whole bean customer, who in theory is the one who's most interested, who's getting their hands dirty with the coffee, who's going to live with one bag of coffee for a week or two and really understand it and get the nuances of it, not just have one you know, fleeting experience at a coffee bar, like those people, we're not doing anything for them. We're not marketing to them. We're not giving them information. We're just, you know, we put altitude and, and really obscure ass flavor notes on a bag and, and they're supposed to be impressed by that. And they're paying, you know, a premium price, you know, 14, 15, 17, 22 dollars for a bag of these beans. And I, I just, I, I remember being at opening day of Intelligentsia Pasadena, um, the third LA shop, and watching this uh, middle aged couple waiting in line, and they pass by the retail shelf and they pick up a, a bag of Black Cat Espresso, 12 ounce bag, 14 bucks, and they're looking at the bag and reading about it. And you know, the husband's like, oh, you know, $14. And the wife's like, yeah, it's so expensive, but it's totally worth it. You know, it's like they're the best. And it's like, you know, you go to the grocery store down the street and you're going to find a 12-ounce bag of Pete's for like twelve ninety-five, like like a dollar and five cents less than this product that was roasted two days ago locally that some of the best source co- – it, it was just like the value perception is so screwed up that we've made – something as simple and honest as coffee into a luxury item. So I just thought, like, I, I'm declaring bankruptcy on on trying to do this inside of a coffee bar context or trying to, like, dress this up. Like, I just want to do good, honest coffee. In the, so, so the Tonks thing is, is like, all right, let's, let's do a roastery that's designed from the ground up to only hit home runs or at least strong base hits mm-hmm. that we don't have an offering list. I'm not stocking 10 different coffees at a time. I'm not trying to do coffee for this type of customer and then this goes out to this wholesale account and then this goes to the restaurants that don't really care and are going to screw it up and this is the quote-unquote house blend and this stuff we dark roast for those people that don't you know it's just like no 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 no. let's let's one coffee at a time make sure it's absolutely the best it can be on the premise that coffee that's good is generally not an acquired taste. You might be like, I don't like this coffee as much as the other, but honestly, if it's like an 88 point anything and you don't like it, you're just weird. Or we really screwed up the roast. Like it's not 
rocket science. Right. Um, and I still feel like that's a heresy among like coffee professionals that 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 you know either either it's one of these you know oh taste is subjective and blah 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 and it's just like you know turtles all the way down <laughs> attitude <laughs> philosophically about like uh, craft and uh, um, and and I don't know I I think like you know you you can hit a sweet spot that's gonna work for the vast majority of at. people that like coffee and. I mean, like that espresso I had this morning. Like it didn't. It, it was. It was beautiful. It had nuance. It didn't feel. It didn't feel like it was challenging me, or right. that, I, or that I was looking at some some sort of premise that you know that was. Well, that's my thing. So I get. I and Chris and I talk about this all the time. It's like we, the coffee industry, obtrusively tries to make coffee challenging for people just so that they can be different a lot of the time. And a lot yeah. of the time, in our opinions, and I think a lot of people's opinions. They end up under roasting coffee because they really have to have that nuance, all the crazy nuance and how crazy can it be? And right. then, but at the end of the day, really what's happening is we're making people not like this product. And you've been speaking to it for like the last few minutes. So it totally resonates with me because all we're doing is we're misrepresenting an opportunity all the fucking time just to be cool. There, are, pro it. there are probably so many reasons behind this. And you can tell me if you agree with these or not. Right. But I feel like one of the biggest reasons that our industry does this is because we are super insecure, insecure. Oh, super insecure. It, exactly what you were saying, Tony, about how we have to buy our like $300 like raw denim apron and grow our mustache to no end and put the right wax in it. And it's just because we feel weird about like having just a coffee job. So since we just have just a coffee job we have to dress it up in all the uh, all these other ways like we're which, not special all of a sudden yeah and the parallel of beer makes perfect sense like i can go get the best beer in the world and it's not it's not like a challenging proposition for me to drink it i drink it i enjoy it it's not like rocket science right. i'm like and, yeah and that's good beer and the guy who serves it to you doesn't even have to be particularly friendly or to no. have bathed recently or whatever you're still gonna leave him a dollar tip yeah <laughs> I, I give him a buck and, and like it's not, not like, like, oh, man, you're not even going to get this, or, like, you probably won't even, you know, even beers that I don't like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not a big IPA fan, but I can go somewhere, get an IPA, and enjoy it, and it's not like, I don't need a fucking certificate in whatever. I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm just mad, dude. I, I just get so angry. It's like, dude, we make coffee. Be proud of it. And, like, yeah. It should be something that everyone but, can enjoy. But I think, I, you know, so, so I, I don't want to be totally dismissive about this. So I, I'm, I'm working on a book, and I'm not going to go into that because sexy. I, I shouldn't even say it at all because every, every time I tell somebody, and this is terrible, I'm telling, like, thousands of people that I'm working on a book. This is a huge mistake. There's no book here. Because what happens is, is somebody's like, oh, what are you doing right now? And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm working on a book about, uh, about coffee. And that's they're stuff. like, oh, well, what's the, you know, and so then you kind of give the elevator pitch for the book, and then you see them four days later and the first thing out of their mouth is how's that book coming oh gosh <laughs> so yeah 2018, 2018. that's what i'm saying that's actually not too far away, oh it's no not it's too far. i've been saying 2017 but now that's getting close so i'm pushing it back i just i need to sandbag this as much as possible so people don't don't expect this anytime soon yeah but but it's it's coming soon enough that no one else should try to beat me to the punch that's that's all i'm saying yeah, I don't, I don't know. Don't even try to write a book. <laughs> don't, don't. Yeah, don't. Don't do don't it. Even it's crazy. It's kind of like a build out because I <laughs> live in the neighborhood where we're building out our cafe. So every day I see people. They're like, "You guys done yet? You guys <laughs> done yet?" And I'm like, "Same oh, answer oh. as last one, week." I'm one day further than we were yesterday. 
<laughs> you guys open? I'm like, I wish, man. <laughs> so you're getting great coffee through Tonks. Two people, different coffees, subscription basis, and you were just like, I'm going to bring coffee to the people. Uh, or you know what I mean? How? Yeah. So so I, I just I I felt like okay I you know I I I think I kind of understand the internet as like <laughs> a, a dude who spends too much time on it since you know since since Netscape uh, you know 3.0 or whatever the hell and um, so I. Uh, you know, I knew that that was right for me. I knew that it was a way to build a business that could scale and could keep the focus on just making the roasting really awesome. Um, there's something about roasting the same coffee batch after batch after batch after batch that lets you, I think, get really dialed into the nuances of the roasting process that typical, you know, larger roaster production environments don't really afford you that that much uh, that much experimentation or iteration and so, so it's just sort of from the ground up, I thought this, this would make the most sense, that, that essentially we had you know, tens of thousands of customers, but we really only had one customer. We were sort of optimizing for, for a model of a customer who's just somebody that loves good coffee, wants to make coffee at home, um, and you know, needs some support in that. And so we just build an infrastructure to deliver and support those customers and, um, and did it you know, kind of at the garage level. And, it metastasized into something big and weird and um and uh and yeah and and that was that was a fun three year ride that <laughs> <laughs> we call that freelance <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then then i got to be i got to be a a, a sellout which was uh, a, another a interesting life cool experience thing, yeah and and uh contrary to i mean not to clear this up Oh, we have a siren coming. Siren coming in hot. Shit, There's it's the emergency. fuzz. It's the fuzz. <laughs> they're after Tonks. <laughs> they heard he was in with some folks at local, and they're after him. Damn, guys. I, uh, I didn't mean to bring this to your doorstep. <laughs> we can handle ourselves. We're family. Um, yeah, are you, are you Instagramming this while we're podcasting? Of course we're Instagramming this. God, this is social media on social media action. So we got ourselves, yeah, snap, you brought the coffee to the people, and then you sold it out. That's right, yeah. Damn <laughs> sellout. I sold, 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 sold out the people. Um, you know, I mean, we were, I don't know, like I, I could, again, this is another one of those, we could just do a whole podcast talking about well, this Well, that's why we've been trying to get you for stuff, so long. But, um, it's easy to talk about good stuff with Tonks. Yeah, well, look, let's not make this a three-parter. I, I'm, no, we I'd got be you. ashamed if it's a two-parter. No, it's, two, it's two-parter. That's all it's going down, maybe. Um, yeah, so, you know, the... It, it takes money to make money. Uh, we were building out a Respect. roasting facility in Boyle Heights. We needed some more dough, and um, you know we were growing too fast to kind of make it work from cash flow or yada yada. And um, so, you know, get in bed with various potential investors, and you know, see how they play footsie. And um, and when we thought we needed a little more leverage, we open the door to the possibility of someone coming in and purchasing Tonks, which I thought, you know, I named a coffee company after myself. Like it's, I, I, I was saying this to Eileen uh, from Ritual uh, a couple days ago. Um, like she was like, wasn't, wasn't it always your plan to sell out? And I'm like, I would not have named it after myself if I ever thought <laughs> I was going to sell the company. I thought this was like a, I mean, we actually worried about that when we first started pitching investors. If they kind of got when they were like what's this tonks brand about which is 
just a terrible thing to try to explain to somebody in the first place. Oh, but no. But it just felt like you know the 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 brand name space for coffee companies is is vast and crowded. Like uh, there, I mean, there is no idea you can have to, for a name for a coffee shop that either doesn't sound horribly generic or has been taken by ten other. It's just you know, Cat and Cloud is great. We got lucky, you know. And and I like that you spell out and and you don't have an ampersand because there's too many ampersands in the world. You do spell out and. We right? have it. We we spell oh, out and it, on our ampersand domain, but we have there. ampersand on the on the thing. You know damn it. You know what's funny about that is that I actually I was not a fan of the two of a two word name in general. I love our name and I think it's great. But when we first started thinking of names, we were trying to do one word straight up because we were kind of sick of the the whole like artisan craft like hammer and spear thunder and lightning (laughs) shit that's going on or whatever crossbows and courses right exactly but the graphic predated (laughs) the graphic predated the name by and the and the company by like six years or so so it was perfect fit but yeah tonks that's great you just explain it to him you're just like my name's tonks and i'm a fucking legend (laughs) so i named my company after myself yeah, it, it really was like like uh, uh, season one of Silicon Valley there for, <laughs> for a while. I mean, I actually I, I say that as a joke, but in the reality is that Silicon Valley is really hard to watch because a lot of those things do hit pretty close to home. Or, or you miss the or algorithm, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So pivot. Yeah, Gavin Belson yeah, oh took you down, huh? Oh, oh dear. Fully. Um, Uh, yeah, so, uh, so anyway, you know, we needed money cause you know, you, you need money to build stuff. Uh, you do. And, uh, and, you know, we talked to a few coffee companies kind of seriously. Um, I think, you know, my attitude was we just get somebody to throw down a price and then we're like, haha, see ya. And we take that to our investors and be like, okay, beat this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because at the time, uh, uh, Bauman and I were still in, in, you know, we we were our own board of directors. Like we weren't, you know, we'd taken on some investment and, and, you know, we were working with some pretty good, smart people. And, you know, we had pressure to go in different directions. But at the end of the day, we still, you know, got to kind of make our own decisions. And once we took on a, a bigger chunk of money, that would change. And so it mm-hmm. mattered kind of who we got in bed with. And, um, and, and you know, a, yeah, I don't, I don't want to give business advice to, to anyone or make this into that kind of a podcast. I'm sure there's plenty of stupid startup podcasts I could get on and talk a blue streak <laughs> about that. But, um, you know, I mean, for us, it was just, um, you know, how can we keep going in the direction that we're going and, and maybe focus less on the day-to-day growth metrics and more on kind of building the, the long-term sustainability of what we're mm-hmm. doing. And, um, and you know, Blue Bottle uh, was in a position that they had uh, a tremendous amount of cash and a lot of new blood on their executive team. And, and I think, you know, compared to the other companies of their scale in that space of the sort of third wave players, I think they had, seemed to have the smartest long-term vision um, and, and, you know, it seems to be the most adult operation in the room in some ways. And uh, so after, you know, months of uh, contentious lawyers and forensic accounting and, and all of the, the madness and negotiating table tantrums and stuff that come with something like this, we uh, 
signed some papers. Uh, I literally signed them after Sprudge uh, leaked to the world that we had sold. Perfect. <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I guess that ends this negotiation. I'll <laughs> I'll get that pen and sign this uh, document right where it stands, and and we're done. Thank you, Sprudge. Uh, Meddling. Yeah, yeah. I'll never forgive them. <laughs> yeah. We'll do another podcast about that. <laughs> we have so many podcasts with Tonks coming up. Yeah. For the next Tonk, month, it'll be Tonks, Tonks and Truby podcast and episode 12. Tonks and Trubaca <laughs> for life. Yeah. Okay, so you sold it. So I sold it, hung out at Blue Bottle for a while, yep. uh, transition, transitioned our team uh, into being a Blue Bottle team uh, and transitioned our customers over the course of six months or so into right. becoming Blue Bottle at home customers and kind of, um, you know, found that the infrastructure we had built for our, our, you know, little web operation actually applied to lots of different aspects of their, mm, you know, business? infrastructure, yeah. their business, which you know, which, which needed, needed some tune-ups. And, um, and so I think, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, again, could do a whole nother podcast about, about that, but, uh, but I am, I am a, uh, a happy blue bottle shareholder. I think they're, you know, a super interesting company. They seem to be learning fast. The coffee keeps getting better. And, um, you know, at a time when I think a lot of companies start to scale up and see product quality decline, um, they've managed to go the other direction. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's that. And then I thought, well, okay, well now I got to write that stupid book. <laughs> <laughs> but then something else happened. You're still writing the book. So that you're right. Yeah. But then, then something else happened because we didn't introduce you as any of those other things you work for or with or for however that works, a company called local. Yeah, so uh, Local is a fast food concept uh, by Daniel Patterson, San Francisco Michelin-starred chef, and Roy Choi, uh, L.A. food truck pioneer, Kogi Barbecue Taco Truck, and a number of restaurants. And um, and these guys got together uh, with kind of the, the grandiose scheme of uh, reinventing the way people eat fast food. So fast food made with whole ingredients, uh, involving real cooking, um, paying wages above fast food wages, teaching people real job skills and, um, and the food being, you know, very accessible and approachable and, you know, not trying to be the, you know, wearing its sustainability on its sleeve, but to be just like delicious and good and actually fast, like real fast food. And, um, but happens to be healthier well, yeah. and, and cooked and and made with real ingredients and um and so uh i guess it was uh, over a year ago like a year and a half ago um i i got uh email that you know roy wanted to talk about um you know whether whether it was realistic to do you know like good coffee at the kind of price points that they wanted to do and um and i sat down with daniel and kind of talked through and I, I, you know, I gave them some ideas. I'm like, well, you know, you could, you know, here's how Chick-fil-A is doing its coffee program. Here's what some other people have done. You could, you could try to like bring the prices down this way and, you know, maybe like partner with some people over sourcing, contract out the roasting, like just sort of here's, here's the different rolls of duct tape you could grab and probably get something that's not terrible. Um, they were like, well, how about if we start a roasting company with you and roast it in house? And, um, 
And yeah, in spite of still being <laughs> shell-shocked from having just gotten rid of one roasting company that I had, um, and uh, I, I said yes, uh, largely because uh, I knew that I could drag Sumi Ali, who was apprentice roaster at Tonks, and, um, and Sumi, uh, I'm sure, would love to be on this podcast as well right now. Hi, Sumi. Hi, Sumi. I know you're listening. Woo! Um, yeah, Sumi is one of my favorite people in coffee, um, and uh, he, was, uh, he was a barista at Intelligentsia. He opened a shop in Atlanta years before that. Um, and, uh, I, I knew I wanted to poach him for Tonks pretty early in Tonks's life. Uh, he was at G and B. I think he mm-hmm. and Percy Ramirez were like oh, yeah, the first baristas yeah. at, at the original G and B pop-up at Squirrel. And they just, you know, had a sensibility about hospitality. I think that was, you know, beyond what, what anyone else was doing. And I, um, you know, I knew I wanted to work with him. The fact that he was a BMW mechanic yeah, and a motorcycle sick. mechanic was like, I think anyone that's mechanically inclined, which I am not, <laughs> is it has the bones to be a good coffee roaster. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's you know, roasting is more like, it's less that you're a virtuoso performer than that you know how to tune the piano. Because the most right. complicated roasting profile is basically like Mary had a little lamb. It's not that complicated, um, but the tuning of the machine is where the real action happens. And I shouldn't say that because I'm saving that for a chapter in the book. But, oh, um, tuning. <laughs> but Tune in to Tonks' book in 2018 <laughs> to hear more. So, so yeah, so so he's he's in it, and and thank God because uh, he's competent in in so many of the ways that I am not and uh and you know right now it's just we have two shops the original location opened in January in uh the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles um near the Jordan Downs housing projects and uh and uh what they called Charcoal Alley 103rd Street which sort of burns to the ground in the and the LA riots and um and it's you know and it's this neighborhood that you can still you, you can see that it was you know when it was built it was super vibrant and it still has the vibrancy today but economically it's just you know down in the dumps and uh it, it's it's as much of a food desert as you can find in southern california there's no grocery stores there's very few restaurants of any kind the you know the little mini marts have bulletproof glass and um so the the food options and the dining out options in those communities are thin so it's a good case study for kind of what this restaurant concept is trying to accomplish so uh you know fast forward on the coffee side we're doing coffee down there for a buck a cup uh prices are higher in oakland the first shop because it's it's in a neighborhood where we need it's to a, have yeah. higher prices and um and so i think there's going to be some flexibility about that going forward depending on where the stores are located but i went to that shop in oakland and the food was good and it was such an experience because i'd heard all about la i uh don't live near la right now but i did i was picking up coffee in oakland a couple weeks back and we walked in and it was busy for one very busy and i loved that it was just staying true i mean it was bumping hip-hop really loud they're killing it oh yeah the soundtracks are great soundtracks are very all all of roy's restaurants do well on music but i feel like local is just like i don't i don't know how who's putting together our like playlist but it's it was twerk time it's good twerk to work day was every day at local and the people were really nice there was a a lady a girl working at the door because it was line out the door and she was letting in a certain amount of people keeping that fire code legit 
and uh, I got I got multiple things, and they were all good. But I got I got noodles, which is different than the the chicken spicy chicken burger dealio, and then. But it was it was good, and I had coffee as well. And this is no bullshit. It was very good coffee, <laughs> <laughs> and it was not like quote unquote fast food coffee. It was really well done coffee in a cup. Yeah. So everyone's asking like like how like how are you doing it? Like what like they assume that there must be some corners being cut to to do good coffee for a dollar and I mean we control waste our volume is really high uh I am not paying myself an enormous salary and uh you know it's just there there's an easy way to not cut corners and it's to not have corners in the first place was that the deciding factor of when you're talking with Daniel and Roy that, okay, we're going to bring this roasting company in house to be able to offer coffees at that price point, as opposed to say going to like an intelligentsia or some town and being a wholesale account. Right. Well, I, I think, I think it was like, it, it was that we thought we could do better uh, and certainly better on price if, yeah. if we did it in house. Um, and, and I think, more to that, it's just it's it's another avenue to kind of expand the opportunities for for people inside of the company. That there's you know just another kind of culinary moving part that that people at local can engage with and um, that kind of belongs to us, which I think is important. Um, and and so for me, there were two kind of explicit reasons that I said yes to it. Uh, the first was you know I mean working with with chefs of this caliber with this kind of work ethic is uh is humbling and terrifying um there's you know i mean genuinely visionary and i think that i think that there's you know i mean ever since kind of anthony bourdain's kitchen confidential there's there's been this little fetish among a lot of us and and kind of the coffee thing of feeling like okay there's you know, like we've kind of got it easy in the culinary world. Like the pinnacles of coffee are, you know, you can get a reputation pretty fast in the coffee industry without putting in your time the way you have to in, in the culinary world. And so people who come out in the culinary world as chefs are people who are, they're, they're the Navy SEALs. And like, you know, we, we pretend that we're special forces in coffee, but we're, we're, we're more very special forces than special forces. Right. It's like, I had a coffee job for a year, and I post on Instagram and I blog, so I know what the fuck I'm talking about. Exactly. Like, now you're an authority. Now, now people are calling you a coffee savant, and you know, having you like be director of coffee for their new. Right. It's so easy. That's one of the things that blew me away about coffee. But like, dude, did you talk to this person? And I'm like, what the fuck do they know about anything? They're like, <laughs> dude, they're the bomb. And I'm like, no, dude, they're they're new. They're new here. Yeah. And and that's again, that's part <laughs> new of that. Guy. <laughs> that's part of that frustration of how there's no like like the 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 litmus test for separating shit from Shinola in the coffee industry is still like you're looking at all these second and third order signifiers like what kind of espresso machine do they use, you know, how how nice is their apron? What's, you know, do they have a lineage that ties to some other fly by night bougie coffee concept like it's it's because people don't trust their own palates so they're taught not to and it's this you know it's like is the coffee good like I, that's all i that's all i care about that's all anyone should care about and you know contrary to popular industry opinion i don't think it takes a great deal of sophistication or experience to know good coffee from not so good coffee i agree with you and and when you talk to you know and that's the other thing is like having one foot in both worlds and i i think probably 
the vast majority of people that are in your audience who I assume are not in the industry, like get this, like, like, you know, when, you know, when you've had a, a, an espresso or a cappuccino or a brewed coffee, that's like just out of this world dynamite, you know, from the, you hit the bottom of the cup and you're ready to order another. And it's like, it, it happens. It happens way too rarely. You know, you know where it happens, you know what the batting averages are, and you know that even the best shops that can deliver that experience deliver it too rarely. And this is, you know, like, like the, there's still so much potential for where we could go with coffee and in these service environments, that's not being met. And, and I don't think it takes a lot of discernment to kind of if you if you're into coffee you sort of you, you figure that out over over a reasonably short amount of time um yeah i don't know i think people feel like they don't people don't trust their palace it's just like you said it's, they're taught not to it's funny because the question since we've been building out this and i i'm a gearhead so i love gear and i love machines and grinders probably more than most people you know i love like cars and things with motors and stuff like that but I'm so over some aspects of it. But the question I get asked more than anything else is, what espresso machine are you going to have? Like, people never ask about what the service model is going to be. They never ask about any other differentiating thing. They're like, what kind of espresso machine are you going to have? Which is cool. I guess they're just nerding out, and, th- and they want to do that. So Right. Or, or what? But what else would they ask? I, I mean, it's I like, know. That's, like the geography know. of where you're buying your beans from or, you know, or, or maybe, what importers or you're using. I would ask. Like, are, are those things really interesting either? No, I, I guess... What I would ask as a consumer is, how are you going to run the line so I get my coffee fast? (laughs) That's what I would ask because that's my – assuming everything else is is being equal and the the cup's like somewhat quality, I value time more than anything. I value speed of service more than anything. So I'm always curious. is like, how are you going to run the line? How are we going to make this work so that I don't have to wait 20 minutes for coffee? But, yeah, I don't know. I got all these – I got all these – I got all these problems in my head. (laughs) This is why you have a podcast. This is why I have a podcast. And it's funny to hear someone. You need to do an episode where it's just like you alone late at night with a microphone and a bottle of whiskey. Like the the drunken history thing, but with with coffee. Yeah. And I can't, uh, I can't stand. Maybe this is tangential or whatever, but the comparison between baristas and high-end chefs it's it's fucking absurd to me and anybody any barista any barista even that i know and i know some of the best baristas in the world that compare themselves to high-end chefs no you're they're 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 high-end waiters it's it's especially now with where we're and and i know that i'm talking to two like champion baristas here so this is but but like (laughs) ex-champion former disgrace champions uh um yeah i i'm you know and god i hope there are not a lot of baristas listening there are baristas listening to this and but but i i'm like i i say this all the time in the discussion about barista competitions because for whatever reason because of who i am and who i hang out with and where i happen to be like like people always ask me oh did you see so-and-so's competition routine i'm like i've been watching barista competitions for 15 years now like i'm not like i've zero interest and i can't sit through them i i don't even squirm i don't even get like anxious for the person and and at this point like grinder technology espresso machine technology is in a place where you know what like i can train somebody to be competition caliber if they have like like barista is 
80% like an aptitude, like you can just handle the mise en place, you don't get flustered easily, like you're, you know, if you're good at doing dishes, you know, efficiently, you can probably learn to like make make espresso beverages without like stumbling or tripping or handshaking. It's, you know, totally. it, it's not it's not rocket science. And if if you wanted to legitimize barista competitions, if you wanted some culinary credibility about it, then every barista should have to roast their own damn coffee. And Otherwise, either- you are just the waiter serving it you're just you're not the sommelier you're the guy that knows the wine list and comes out and like and and tells this to you know it, it, it's if it, the the thing that we've under optimized for in the coffee industry during this third wave era is the roasting process that at most of our leading vanguard coffee companies the the roaster is a roaster second a forklift operator and inventory manager first like it's it's not a glamorous job it's not necessarily a fun job you have to be a little kind of weird or antisocial or kind of situationally Asperger's-y to want to like stand in front of a roaster <laughs> Jerry, for hours and hours mind. and hours and do the same thing like I love it like I I you know I miss long roast days I don't want to do it all of my life but I go through phases where that's like it's the best most therapeutic sort of meditative thing in the world to do but it's I, I, I don't know. So, so, no, so yeah. I, if you want to legitimize barista competitions, make the baristas roast the coffee. Also, <clears throat> in the way that I'm thinking of it is partially competitions and partially just day-to-day. And I don't say these things about chefs and baristas to put down the barista culture or to even talk a little bit of shit on them because I feel like I'm one of the biggest advocates of people who want to be in coffee, spreading information about coffee, and just, like, I love the barista game but there's there's two things that i think need to be said it's just like one is it just like erase that from your head like you manage one ingredient you do a couple of different things with it you pull espresso and you add milk to it and that's fine that, that's like one that's one part of your job it, it yeah it's more nuanced than that but if you compare that to someone like a chef like they're managing way more ingredients they have so many more things that they have to keep track on. I don't know anything about food, but I know that if I get one plate of food from a really awesome restaurant, it's got like tons of ingredients, all infinitely like equally as complex in their, you know, farm to fork or whatever you want to call it as, as coffee, which is our one ingredient that we work with. The other thing that I want to say is quit making those comparisons because it doesn't matter. We don't need to be Michelin star chefs. Like we don't need to feel like we're, but but like, but you, you want that I mean? validation because it's just it's because okay. your customers you you assume that like they can't give you validation because they don't they don't they don't know good coffee from bad coffee right it's like they don't appreciate what we're doing we need somebody who can appreciate it and it's it's the culinary people it's the people that we look up to our heroes we want our heroes to tell us that our stuff is great again it's like the people that are brewing and we want them to tell our customers it's like, great I'm basically David Kinch so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's okay, but I brew a wicked IPA, <laughs> and it, I don't know. I'm an asshole. It's whatever. No, I I, I think that's that's appropriate assholeism, and so that's like I I'm you know that's I don't I don't want to denigrate baristas either because uh, some of my best friends have been baristas or, or are recovering baristas. Um, recovering <laughs> baristas, <laughs> but but it's. Uh, yeah, some of my best friends are recovering coffee assholes. I, I'm a recovering coffee asshole. We were all assholes at one point. And what our takes the asshole era. out of you? 
Uh, is it coming to terms with the fact that it's it's special to you only and it doesn't have to be? Yeah, it's it's right? that that and no one else reasons. is coming along for the ride. Right. That that you you know you start to get into these you know conversations. You know that whole era of like you know how many truly good shots of espresso have you ever have you ever had that? Uh, and and it's everyone yeah. I pull, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I will say though to your to your comment on roasting your own coffee. You know, not everyone's set up to do that, but since we've oh been man, roasting you can't throw our a rock coffee, without hitting a micro roaster today, right? They're like giving those roasting, you know, twelve kilo roasters away at the back door of a thrift store. Oh now. yeah, and it's like there's one. Oh, there's one right there. It just drove down the street in the back of a Volvo. Yeah, man, it's you know. But I I feel, which is weird because. I feel like I'm a better barista than I've ever been, and I'm actually working bar a lot less than yeah. I did, let's say, when I was at Ritual or in the early Verve days. But just there's something about having that accountability and A to Z, and you basically have to eat your own words. Because baristas love excuses. It's like, oh, yeah, the roast is a little different today. Or like, oh, you know, it's, it's pulling a little weird. There is none of right, that. Right, the that humidity keeps changing. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, oh, it got foggy outside. And it's like, no, dude. Like, huh. I roasted this coffee. You know, Jared and I, like, if if we blow it, we have to eat that. Like, we have to own yeah. that. It's, yeah, and I feel like ro- like in, in a lot of companies, the roasters are very insulated from from what goes on on the bar and and the the you know that 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 separation between barista and roaster like like when i look at you know thinking about like the culinary thing like who who in coffee could qualify to be like a michelin starred coffee shop well i mean there's very few people that i think would meet my basic qualification which is that you've got to like whoever controls the product experience like you, you have to control end to end. You have mm-hmm. to be green buyer, roaster, and essentially head barista, all in one person. So you have to be David Schomer or you know someone like Vile who's right. like in there, and it's like okay, he's traveling, he's buying the green, he's he's running the roaster, he's fiddling with stuff. It, you know, you the product you get at the at the end of the counter when you go in there and order a drink is it, it's authored by him yeah. that is that is how he wanted that experience to be mm-hmm. start to finish and so that's like like a basic minimum qualification but for some reason lemming like people sort of follow this model of like oh well we need to scale up now we need a you know we need a qc director let's list Gosh, for uh let's just throw you know, our funding away yeah let's you know let's we need somebody to sit up in a room with an actron machine and and a sca approved you know scoring system and oh and gosh. tell the roaster what they're doing wrong yeah let's just while he's operating the forklift and we're vanilla Everybody's dealing vanilla. with you know inventory management dude it's not, even it's, not it, it's tough because i really get on with the fact that we get to control the whole i mean that's why we went into business chris and i that we can go to origin and we can buy the coffees that we want to buy and now we know how to roast them to make them taste the way we want to roast them if yeah. we prepare them the way we want to prepare them and we can manage that whole experience and we can also teach other people to do that though right which can actually allow them to understand coffee as a whole and i think that's what can make coffee special because without that coffee's cool to a lot of people but it can't be as special as that experience from going to origin and tasting it there and translating what you love there into the cup for the people here Everybody else can make up those excuses. Yeah, and I feel like, t- like to your point of, oh, he's our quality director. It, 
just I feel like a lot of companies add in so many QC checks that there's actually no accountability right. at all because there's so many escape hatches and it's unclear as to where there's quality degradation happens in the green buying. Did the coffee come in how it was supposed to? Was it even good coffee in the first place? Was it roasting or was it QC? Was QC not communicating with the roaster or was the roaster not communicating with the barista or is the roaster even supposed to communicate with the barista? Are the recipes wrong? Is it the barista's job to make the recipe and the brew specs or is it the QC or is it... Right. Too many let's let's go to the training department and ask them for some input, and then yeah, it's just it's overly complicated. Yeah, and but I but I don't but I don't think it needs to be. No, I, mean, I agree. I don't think um, it needs to be at all. I but but authority and accountability are are like have to be part of that. Fuck, dude. And and people have to trust <laughs> people have to like trust their own taste and be be honest about it. I mean, the reason that you know, I mean, it things get. Things get nasty and cutthroat in like you know award-winning kitchens. You know, it's not, it is, it is not necessarily a work environment that most people would self-select for, um, because yeah, you don't you don't necessarily mince words. Um, so I don't know. I mean, does coffee need you know need some uh, superstar chef to come in and yell at us to make it taste better? I, I would ar- I would argue maybe yes, <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. I mean I I you know I I I say that like, you know I I'm I consider myself a pretty good roaster. I have a lot of experience. I've worked on a lot of different machines. I've I've you know I'm self-taught for better or worse. I think that's better because I don't think the orthodoxies around roast profiling that are out there make a tremendous amount of sense. Um, and you know I think they they work. It's it's a heuristic that you can lean on, but but if you're really trying to understand it and discover it, you just you, you there's no substitute for just breaking your head over it again and again and again with with good coffees. Um, yeah. And 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 honestly, working with like bad coffees, like I've roasted a lot of Monsoon Malabar and Robusta back in my day, and I you know I learned things from those coffees that I would never learn if I only did exclusively you know high grown uh centrals and yeah it's so i so so there's something about that like chef mentality that if if i were to take like a renee redzepi and lock him in a production roasting environment for any coffee company and say like okay like i'm not even going to tell you how to do anything other than not set the building on fire with this machine and at the end of a week i would expect that the coffee coming out of that roaster just by the mentality of a chef going in there and getting his hands dirty and tasting his own, you know, eating his own dog food, like you would come out the other side with something that was on par with the best stuff in the world or maybe, you know, totally new and profoundly delicious. Right. And I think something that's helped us out a lot, and we have a lot less roasting experience behind the machine than someone like you, but what we do have that I think has been a huge asset is clarity we have a vision for what we want our coffee to taste like and we don't care if anybody else likes it not in the sense of like we don't want our consumers to like our coffee but we're not chasing you're not second guessing your own judgment we we know exactly what we want it to taste like when it comes out the other side and we understand how we want it to be brewed and we understand what we want it to feel like when it hits the customer's mouths and and that clarity has enabled our learning curve to just really just like 
go super fast and i feel really yeah. confident about our coffee even though i haven't been roasting since like 2005 or anything like that <laughs> you know yeah and our, our shop's not even open but i think that that's really really powerful i, I cup with a lot of other people and I don't know if a lot of people are really clear on what their version of quality is and whether right. that's because they don't have it or they're constantly comparing it to someone else's. Well, well, I think that, you know, this this gets us down a rabbit hole, but uh, which, you know, looking yeah, at the time here. We got but, a little uh, rabbit hole time still. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, I think a lot of cupping is still so focused on green coffee quality assessment that it's very hard to do cuppings around unless you're a roaster unless you're someone who has a lot of experience cupping the same coffee roasted in slightly different ways over and over and over again i think it's for for a lot of people that i cup with who aren't roasters i feel like they have a hard time understanding what's really going on with the roast versus what's intrinsic to to the coffee yeah how would you coffee. know you know if you were just like a normal I don't know. Yeah, in yeah. in the in the, la <laughs> the language that we use, it's still sort of trying to pull descriptors that are. It, so so I think I think there needs to be. I, I mean, this is you know probably a generational project, but there needs to be a way to to talk about and describe the flavors and experiences of of roasting coffee that are you know I mean at at Tonks. You know, I tried to have a little bit like like Ryan Brown is good with words, so he's like, really good with words. Where it's like you sort of like try to come up with our own vernacular for how we talk about the things that we like or don't like in a particular cup that are, you know, that aren't just about trying to just find some perfect descriptor of the the fruit or whatever nonsense is going on intrinsically with the coffee, but like, d you know, how do you describe mouthfeel? How do you describe like the the, the way things linger in an aftertaste and you know what what shapes do those bring out and you know I don't know I mean I you know back in my Victrola days I got really weird with my personal cupping notes because no one else was ever going to see them it was strictly for my own purposes for my own iteration of like how am I going to treat this coffee differently or how am I going to you know, I mean, the, the Streamline Espresso blend back then was an eight-bean blend. Nobody does anything like that anymore because that's it's crazy. I think we didn't know better or that's just what, that was the times. But but so it was like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to bring out this characteristic more in the next roast, but then back off the quantity that I use when I blend it. And then, you know, you just start chasing the, yeah, yeah. Roast, chasing the roast, dragon. Roasting is weird. Roasting Roasters is so are weird. weird. Some days I wake up and I feel like everything I know about language I learned from Ryan Brown. Oh, that could be true. I'm writing copy and I'm just like, should oh. I should get Ryan to write my book for Ryan, me. You should definitely get Ryan to at least proofread it. <laughs> Ryan would... Uh, Actually, you know, I, I d I've done a ton of writing with Ryan because Ryan was like my first sound. Like, so part of the Tonks product experience for, for those of you that, that were not uh, our customers back in the day, um, we... Uh, we would every every release every two weeks we would release a new coffee into the wild and there would be uh, a little card with you know all those sort of descriptions of you know here's the producer and this is what you should taste and what's happening on the farm and um and we tried to kind of keep our it had a philosophy around flavor descriptions of really 
only mentioning things that we knew you would absolutely be able to taste. So no like weird, it's kind of vaguely this kind of fruit or something like it should be. If we put it on there, I wanted it to be something that's like, this is going to slap you in the face. Like if I say, you know, you're, you're going to have seascape strawberries or something, damn it, you better taste seascape strawberry in that coffee. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, and then we did like a little letter, which was usually written by me at the last possible moment before we could get it off to the printer and into the <laughs> box in time for the shipment. And, uh, and, you know, I tried to talk about something about, you know, the ontology of coffee quality or something that in a way that people could understand. And Ryan was my like first sounding board and best collaborator in getting me to. He would edit all of my competition performance speeches to no end. And he's really good at it. But he was also relentless about He's it. He's brutal. And it's great. I, I love the feedback, but then he could always outdo himself too. So we would be like driving to the venue with a, we got all our stuff in the minivan and he's like looking at the speech or the outline. He's like, Oh man, you gotta change this right here. We could do this and I'm like, Stop, stop. I can't my my mind can't handle this stuff. You can't flip it up on me last minute. <laughs> I'm just like, Oh my gosh. But yeah, he um I didn't really, it didn't really click with me until a few years later. And I was doing all these, you know, competitions at Verve and realizing that the style of language and kind of like the pacing and the way that I broke down information, I actually learned a lot of that from him. And it was just kind of, I don't know. I didn't realize it at the time I was, I was picking up so much. Good old Ryan Brown. Yeah. I'm I'm a better person for having worked with that. Yeah. He'll definitely challenge you, which is good. And I was really weird when I first met him, and I didn't understand how that worked. And I was like, why do you hate me? (laughs) Whereas, you know, it was Ryan and Gabe, and Gabe was always just, like, really, really nice. And if you did something stupid, he would tell you, like, that was freaking dumb. But Ryan had – it was always this, like, constant pressure. And I'm just like, dang, am I ever going to be able to impress Ryan? Probably not. (laughs) I'm going to work real hard at it, though. Yeah, I don't know. I worked with him for three years. I don't know if I – I don't know how much I impressed him. It's tough. It's a tough, it's a tough world out there. Send me a text message, Ryan. Ryan, if you're say some reassuring this, words. Yeah, just, just be like, I miss you. Ryan Brown, I think the the best green coffee buyer ever in the universe, um, and he's not buying green coffee right now. I'm down with the brown. Yep. Somebody should make him a really big offer that he can't refuse It'd to be a be green coffee buyer again. Yeah. Come back to us. If you're Come a coffee back. company and you want to like level way up, throw some serious bank at that dude. Everybody yeah. has a price. When we open, we could probably afford to pay a maybe fourteen bucks an hour. Fourteen bucks right. an hour. Are you listening, Ryan? How can you turn it down in sunny Santa Cruz, California? <laughs> <laughs> Holy smokes! Well, I think we're gonna wrap this thing up. This was yeah, amazing. Up, oh, you gotta go. All right, we gotta break out. This has been. A journey through space and time. Yeah. I hope I didn't say too much that I'll regret. No. And if you do, I I think it's all great. I think a lot of the really specific information is like years past anyway, you know, some of that stuff. So everybody can look and laugh and be like, oh yeah, that was funny. Uh, That was, that was a good time. But yeah, check out Tonks, check out local coffee. If you're in LA or you're in Oakland, go to local, look it up. I think there's more locations coming. More coming. More Uh, coming. 
Got another one slated for LA. We've got uh, a couple more in Oakland. Uh, Tenderloin in San Francisco should be open uh, hopefully late summer, early fall. We'll see. Moving targets. Moving targets. Book coming in 2035. So, 2035. Don't sleep on everything. Keep your eyes peeled. Hopefully, the New York Times still exists then, so I can make it a New York Times bestseller. It's going to be 100% bestseller. The Times might be gone long. Whatever. You'll invent a new Times. Well, this is Chris Baca. (laughs) And I'm Jared Truby. And you guys have a great night. Goodbye. (laughs) Talks is the best.